What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Ashleen Clark. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you on the Supernet Superhighway called Sky. I'm delighted to be here. And you're very welcome. Um, and we're here to talk about your film, The Devil's Doorway, which is playing at Fright Fest. Mm-hmm. Do, yeah. you want, do you want, before we go into any details, do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what that's about? Um, well, it's set in, it's a found footage film, uh, mm-hmm. but it's a bit of an unusual found footage film. It's shot on 16 millimeter film. It's set in 1960. So it's period, I guess, which mm-hmm. is, uh, not a very common thing you see in found footage films. It centers around, um, two priests who are sent to a Magdalene laundry. Uh, if you don't know what they were, they were institutions where women were basically enslaved in Ireland and in other places around the world, but there was quite a few of them in Ireland until 1996 when the last one closed so it's not ancient history but um, my story takes place in 1960 and these two priests are sent to uh, investigate a purported miraculous occurrence there's a statue that's crying blood and uh, when they get there they uncover things that are much darker and spookier indeed and that's the way I tell you what it's about without giving you any spoilers I think. Sounds <laughs> sounds intriguing and we'll get on I can't wait to talk to you about uh, found footage on 16 mil. But uh, before we get into that, um, cast your mind back, if you can, to either last week or years ago, whenever it was, um, a, an early or, or fond memory you have of watching horror films that sort of got you bit with the horror bug, as it were. Yeah. Um, I think I've, I've been engaged with horror, both in like literature and in films, mm-hmm. since I was very, very young. I'm the youngest in a Catholic household of uh, several other children, so I'm the youngest one. And my dad was a big horror fan. So again, when you're the youngest kid and there's a lot of other kids, parental uh, control becomes a bit a bit more uh, liberal <laughs> as things go along. So mm. I saw things that other kids would not have been allowed to see, like The Exorcist, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, when I was maybe seven. Mm. And my dad would... Uh, and this was re- extremely fun for me. My entire week revolved around Friday nights. We'd go to the video shop, we'd get a video out, we'd watch a scary film, and uh, I lived for it, basically. It was my favourite thing ever. My dad would um, edit out things he thought were unsuitable, but in my dad's head, that was anything that was kind of sex-related, mm. uh, rather than this actual scary stuff that really would traumatise you. So 
for example, in The Exorcist, I did not see the crucifix scene. I think you all know what I'm talking about. Indeed. But I did see the head spinning around and all that kind of stuff. And it completely scared the absolute bejesus out of me. And I think The Exorcist, particularly if you're Catholic, and this would have been the same year I did my first Holy Communion, hmm. um, it's just compl- it's utterly terrifying in ways that it might not be so much if you're not... Uh, part of that faith. I'm not Catholic anymore, but I was a kid then. I mean, you, you don't get to not be Catholic, by the way. You just are forever. They don't think they let you not stop unless they excommunicate you, but I'm not a practicing Catholic. As a kid, though, I just went along with what I was taught at school and so on. I didn't really question it at that point, seven years old. So for me, it was all very real. Mm. And um, that really stuck with me. And to be honest with you, that film still scares the Jesus out of me. And uh, I get really scared by watching horror films. I don't know about other horror fans, but uh, I have people that don't like horror that say to me, oh, I don't know how you can sit and watch all these scary movies. But for me, I do get scared. Mm. And I do want to turn on the light and make my husband come to the bathroom with me and stuff, maybe if I'm watching something scary. But um, I still love them. That's that's part of why I like them, I guess. Uh, but yeah, that would be the, the earliest thing that sticks with me, that... Um, that has just that fascinated me and made me a fan and the thing that I returned to, you know, and it was specifically the moment in The Exorcist that it still scares me. Um, and it's not the scariest moment by anybody else's uh, by any, anybody else's barometer, but it's the mm. bit where um, uh, Father Karras goes into the room and Reagan is. Uh, or it might even be, it's either Max von Sydow, it might be Max von Sydow goes into the room and Reagan is um, taken over by the demon, of course, but she's kind of like paying homage to the to the silhouette of the statue that we've seen at the beginning, you know, the hmm. uh, demon statue. And for some reason, that I find that really scary. It scares the bejesus out of me. No, so I, that, would be, that would be it for me. I think it's funny, it's, it's funny you say about, it's almost like I feel like, being brought up Catholic is like good training for horror films because you've got, you've got, you've got good good belief going on. Even like if you lapse, <laughs> like my dad, my dad's lapsed and he's like seventy two, but still talks about the fact of the threat of being excommunicated as a kid. It's it fascinates the hell out of me. <laughs> well, that, it's very dramatic. You know what? Yeah. One thing I'll say for Catholicism, we know how to do theatre. It's all a big show, yeah. and uh, some many elements of it are very theatrical. So the process of excommunication itself. Is very performative. Mm. There's a, I'm not, as I say, I'm not practicing. I know many people who are. Um, I also know quite a few priests. And one thing I'll say that always surprises people, priests love horror films. But mm. it makes total, well, all the ones that I've ever spoken to about it do, makes total sense that they would because it validates their faith. A lot of horror films center around Catholicism because it is so performative, it is so visually led, and it validates their faith. But, um, for example, there's a, my, and I think most horror fans would enjoy this uh, thing in particular. There's a, there's a Catholic mass called the Tenebrae, which occurs on Good Friday night. Mm. And it is the most gothic uh, theatrical experience you'd ever have in your life. They, it's done in darkness, except just with candlelight. And as the mass goes on, lights are, candles are extinguished one by one. There's 13 lights, I think 12 or 13 and uh, then when they were all out, the church is in complete darkness and everybody has to leave in total silence. And you're not allowed to talk to anybody until you're well away from the grounds of the church. And it's just so gothy and 
you know, I'm into that. Aesthetically, that appeals to me. And it has a, it has a good horror aesthetic in general. I think that's why it's so widely used. So, so think, thinking of your, your film, The Devil's Doorway, as, as, as someone that was involved in writing as well as directing it, what, where, where, did the, where did the idea, the central idea, sort of the kernel of it, come from that became the sort of, the grew in, that was able to grow into a feature film? Well, um, it was an unusual process, actually, this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened was I already had uh, a reputation in Northern Ireland as a theatre director. I'd studied film and I'd made quite a few um, films as well. But at the point that this, that The Devil's Doorway happened, I was mostly working in theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, the producer of the film had a one-page idea for a found footage film that he wanted to make and he was looking for a director. So, uh, but he wanted someone who was really comfortable working with actors and could work with uh, improvisation and things like that. So the film board put him in touch with me because of my theatre background. And I met with him, spoke to him. And the idea was very different to what we made. Mm-hmm. So what he had at the time was he wanted to make a found footage film shot on GoPro Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be contemporary, that would be set now in an abandoned Magdalene laundry. So it would be completely different. It would be something more like Grave Encounters or something like that. Got you. Where, they, where the people in the laundry are ghosts or spectres, you know. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, first of all, I'm really interested in Magdalene laundries. I'm really interested in Catholicism. I'm really interested uh, in lots of things about this, but I don't think it's the right thing I, and I was really concerned that I didn't want it to be exploitative. In particular, I did not want it to be exploitative. Mm. There are women who are only 40 today who, whose lives were completely stolen by the, being put into these places, who were mm. totally institutionalised, whose children were taken away. They didn't do anything wrong. They were in prisons for criminals. They did nothing wrong. Mm. So I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to be exploitative. So um, I said... I can see how this could be a good film, but I think we should uh, do a few things. First of all, found footage is really overdone. So I know I'm a horror fan. I watch loads and loads of horror films. I have a subscription to Shudder and everything. Mm. I scroll through it all. I see a lot of possession films. I see a lot of, horror, a lot of uh, found footage horror. So to make, that sta- to make it stand out and to make it worth doing, I think we need to have a totally different approach. At the same time, the high point of these institutions when they had when they were most active was around 1960, which is an interesting time in Irish history uh, in general. At that time, it's really interesting politically and socially and everything else. So I said, why don't we make a found footage film? Yeah, sure, but make it a uh, period and shoot it because of the time period, shoot it on 16mm film. Uh, it'll give it a completely different aesthetic that's more interesting and there's a, a real reason to have it at that time because of the social issues. Mm. And uh, then we're really getting at the heart of the human drama, which for me, the best horror films, that's what they do. The horror is kind of beside the point. It's it's that you're getting to the heart of this real human drama. Mm. And it felt like that was the best way to do it. I, I thought he mightn't go for this at all because it's completely different to what he says he wants to do. But we had the meeting, I said that, and then I went home and I thought I might never hear from him again because I know he's talking to other people as well. But he came back to me the next day and said, I really like this. So that's kind of what the genesis of it was. That's where it started. And, how, I mean, how did you get round the... I mean, because the, the, the obvious things of doing it contemporary is it's cheaper than period. Yeah. So, so how, 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 did, 
How did that not put put them off? Put put the producer off? In, well, in the I mean, in the initial in the initial instance, I think they were. I know they were thinking, well, we'll just shoot it digitally and use filters, but that's not gonna that's not gonna work. Mm. For me, that's not gonna work. Okay. So myself and the DP, we had shot a lot on film in the past. I had made a ton of eight millimeter films as a student. We, me and Ryan, the DP, had done thirty five millimeter. I think he had done sixteen before as well. Right. So we had experience in shooting film. And the thing about, uh, one of the major things that the producers wanted with this project was they wanted it to feel like an authentic document. And the thing about filters is that they're repetitive. They're not organic. They don't really trick your eye in a film. It might work in a photograph, but not in a film because the flaws are repetitive. So if you're using actual film stock, the flaws are organic. They're not repeated. They, they happen um, randomly. Whereas on, and even if it's very small flaws, little things, I think your eye picks up if there's a little glitch happening at the same point in the screen every eight seconds, you know. Yeah, uh, we've, digital, we've, digital we've, got, we've got quite sophisticated, haven't we, as watchers? We do, we kind of go, that's, yeah. that's real, that's it, not even real. If you don't, even if you don't consciously think to yourself, this doesn't look like real film, you just know, it doesn't have the same, you just know on some deep level. It doesn't really trick your eye. And it doesn't have the same depth. And certainly in terms of anybody who is at all visually orientated, you mm. can really tell the difference. Skin tones um, are not replicable in the same way that they are in, on film, you know. So uh, we were able to, we did some screen tests to show them the difference between the two modes of filming and we're able to convince them that it was the way to go. Now, one thing that was on our side was we only had 15, 16 days, something like that, to shoot in total. Yeah. So we didn't, we weren't, we weren't going, we didn't have time to shoot reams and reams of film and waste it. We didn't have time to do it, even if we wanted to do it. We already were experienced in working with film, so we were confident in handling it. We knew that we weren't going to be wasting it. Also, I, because of the way I work, I do, I like to rehearse with actors. I don't go into a set. A lot of directors do, and I, I think it's really strange <laughs> way to work. They, they meet the actor for the first time on the set. That's actually the norm. It's not the way I work. I want to meet them beforehand. I know what I'm shooting before I go in there. And I've rehearsed with the actors and they're in that character already. So that when we go into shooting the set, we're not figuring those things out and wasting film and stuff like that. So it can be very economical. Does that come so, from your theatre? Does that come as a, yeah, as a tool of your um, theatre background? That, I think that, that... it does, yeah, because obviously that is what we do in theatre. Mm. And um, we, that's just the norm in theatre is to rehearse. And uh, it feels natural to me to do that. And mm. I know that actors like to do it. I've yet to meet an actor who says, oh, no, I don't want to rehearse. They always want to rehearse. They want to rehearse as much as possible. Mm. They want to feel comfortable going into the set on the first day and they want to feel like, I know this character, I have this. And that's what I want too. That's what everybody wants. So it just feels like the natural thing mm. to do. But yeah, it does come from theatre. Um, I think everybody should do it. It's a, a much more... Uh, it's a more economical way to work at, in the long run, and um, it makes everybody happier. To be honest with you, I mean, a lot of the, lot of the directors I've interviewed, they do try and pro. They don't necessarily program in a complete rehearsal, but certainly conversations offset with with um, sort of principal cast is is sort of key to their process. You know, in terms of what they might yeah, want. Yeah, conversations. What... They would maybe meet them beforehand, but that's not the same thing as rehearsing. And it's not so. the same yeah, thing yeah. as working at blocking and so on, you know, whereas I'll have a lot of that already worked out before I get got on you, the set. Now, it's interesting, when you, when you talk about 16mm, I was thinking about films in recent years that sort of caught my eye when 
one, one in particular, I, I, I'm on the, I've got him on the podcast I've not long after seeing it, was um, I'm Not a Serial Killer, Billy O'Brien's film, um, <laughs> which, is, which was one of the experiences, in fact, is the opposite of the subconscious of being, not being tricked by it. I put it on and I'm like, fucking hell, this is, this is 16 mil film, isn't it? Because I couldn't work out why it looked so looked so gorgeous, you know, compared to mm. what I'd been feeding my eyes before. Maybe digital, so it sort of stood off right away. And he talked when we when I spoke to him, he talked a lot about how how um, how they got to how they got to light that and how they got to shoot it. And equally, I spoke. To, have you, I don't know if you've seen the film Hallelujah by Fabrice de Wells, the, um, no. the Belgian guy. I mean, again, that's another. One shot on sixty mil, and he large. He, he used very little artificial light, so there's like straining the bejesus out of it, you know, in terms of trying to get you to see what's going on or get you to only see what you need to see and stuff, you know. And that was the mm-hmm. fun thing for him. So, given you a work with your cinematographer, what what was your conversation? I mean, and also using sixty mil for found footage, which you know, obviously we know, we're used to found footage bouncing us around, and obviously a camera sh- camera used in the sixties isn't the same as one used in the 21st century. So what was the conversation with your cinematographer like about A, using 60 mil and B, trying to develop a kind of period found footage? Well, the conversation about using 16 mil was really easy and quick because Ryan always wants to use film. Fair enough. So that, that was like, <laughs> in a, uh, will we use 16 mil? Yes, let's do that. <laughs> um, so in terms of how to approach found footage in that way, to me, that was one of the beauties about it. And I did not, I don't think of, um, oh, I'm doing a found footage film, so therefore I need to incorporate uh, the, the tropes of found footage mm. at all. What, what, what is found footage at the end of the day except a documentary, essentially? So I, I thought, thought about it more like a documentary gone bad, essentially, you know, because obviously it's a horror film and bad things happen. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I wasn't using as references things like, films that I like, you know, like the Blair Witch Project. Uh, I wasn't looking at paranormal activity and thinking, how do we do this? Those films were irrelevant. I was Mm. looking at uh, documentaries from the early 60s, particularly the Maisel's Brothers stuff, you know, salesmen, uh, things like that. And, you know, the cinema verite stuff from the early 60s. And that is the sort of aesthetic that I was uh, being inspired by rather than other found footage films. So I was thinking about it more in documentary terms for the majority of the film than in um, found footage terms. And if you look at those films from that time, there is a lot of still camera, but also those cameras can be mobile. Uh, There are are passages of the film where the camera is handheld, but the majority of it is quite still, which Mm. again is um, unusual for found footage and just gives it a, a different kind of a feeling. It doesn't have that as much of that frenetic running around as you get normally with fan footage films. Yeah, no, I watched, a lot uh, of it is on tripod. Yeah, I mean, I saw, I only saw it last year, but I saw um, Punishment Park, Peter, uh, Peter Watkins' film, which is, he uses that idea. It's not, I don't even know whether, I don't even know whether they would have called it a fan footage, but it feels like an early one. Because um, mm. it plays, it basically plays a film about a documentary team going in to see this horrible. I don't know if you've seen the film at all. It's it sort of goes no. into this, it goes it's, it basically you go in with the documentary crew to see the nightmare of this dystopian future where we we punish people uh, for, mm-hmm. for you know it's kind of like the the right wing sort of birth of right wing and it, it wasn't until about halfway through that I, I, I kind of began to go oh yeah this is literally found footage in a way because it's just we're just seeing the camera's view 
but not in the way that a director would, let's say, direct the shots. It's it's a series of of footage that's been captured, um, mm. and and the like. Um, but the other quite the other thing I was thinking of with 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 it being is is the sixty mils not as forgiving, obviously, to 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 dark light as as a, as a yeah. GoPro would be. So what what how does that how does that work in terms of what you because. I'm guessing, did you shoot on location or, or in studio? Yeah, we shot on location. So, therefore, you've not got, obviously, as much control of light as you might do if it was a studio setting. So, how do you, how do you work with the notion of a documentary team found footage and 60mm as something to, to shoot onto? Does that make a difference as opposed to when you shoot normally on 16mm? Well, I mean, it depends on what you want to shoot and what it is you're trying to capture, you know. Mm. So they and also our intention in making the film is different to the character who's supposed to be making the film within the film, if you know what I mean. Got you, got you. So if you think of like the Blair Witch, Heather is making her film, and then the filmmakers who made the Blair Witch, they're making their film. Mm. So there's two things going on. Our priest, um, who is the documentarian, and again, many priests have something that they're really good at. That's a that's a hobby kind of thing. If they weren't a priest, they might be doing this sort of thing. That's his deal. He's a he's a documentarian um, hobbyist, and he's pretty good at it. So mm. he's there to document this supposed miracle, and he's got quite a nice eye because essentially it's Ryan, you know, who's mm. got a great eye. <laughs> so some of the stuff he shoots is really nice. It's yeah. nice documentary cinema verite stuff. It's mostly daytime. Um, he's shooting girls at work in this very light-filled laundry. Or if he's in the church where the bleeding statue is, it's much darker, but he's, he does have his equipment. And we're careful to show his equipment. We show what he uses, and we use what he uses mm. uh, also in our own filmmaking. So we can see his light, which is a period-appropriate light at the time that our uh, art department manager sourced himself. He's just brilliant at getting everything. Um, and we see him setting up his microphone and he's lighting the statue. So, and I'm, I specifically wanted to have a contrast. I wanted the film to get darker as it goes along, and it does. It starts off much brighter daylight. We've got girls working in laundry. It's flooded with light, or we're outside and, uh, for small portions of it, and it gets darker and darker and darker as it goes along. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to have a lot of negative space and shadows and so on as the horror kind of ratchets up. The priest, when he's making his film, he lights what he needs to shoot. But then once it's a case of things are happening and I've woken up in the middle of the night and I just need to document it, he works with what light is there. So we have little um, handheld, those little handheld oil lamps and things like that that are lighting very small parts of the scene, you know, mm. maybe just the face of a statue, things like that, um, that are where he's not going to go and get his big light out, you know. So got you, got it's, you. it's kind of a balance between what he wants to shoot and what we want to shoot, but it becomes more our film as it goes along rather than his. He's, it starts off with more of the documentary stuff and then it gradually becomes more and more horror film and um, where he's just shooting to capture. How, how, much, how much is this, the, the, the story sort of drawing on sort of real things? Because I, I, as I understand the Catholic Church... There's, there is a whole industry, isn't there, of, of going around disproving miracles almost, because obviously to have a miracle is quite the money-making thing, isn't it, for any religious yeah. sort of place? Um, yeah. So um, was, that, was that a phenomenon that's been, that's been knocking around for decades? And obviously your, your story reflects that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's been going on for a very long time. The church are generally um, 
really skeptical of miracles or uh, possessions and so on because of course the Catholic Church do have exorcists as well they do mm. perform exorcisms they're really cagey about it they don't it's not like you could phone them up and say hey my girlfriend's possessed here can you get someone around like they'll they'll look at you like you're crazy you know they, they don't it's, it's almost as if they don't fully believe in it you know i was going to say the word the, the word skeptical makes me laugh it is it's true yeah, but it just makes me laugh because it's a bit like they'd be like oh here come on you know we're gonna to have to go around now and look at this you know? <laughs> um like mild irritation but yeah so um my lead priest who's yeah. older played by yeah. Lola Roddy and mm. he's been doing this for 25 years and he's quite sort of he's very very skeptical. He's never seen one of these. He's basically sent a stress test, um, supposed miracles, mm. and he's and he's always found the point, the breaking point. There's always been someone there that's been uh, up to hijinks. There's always been like in Knock, we have Knock Shrine here in Ireland, and that was proven to be a priest with what you know a magical lantern. Uh, back in the day so he's very skeptical he's weary he just goes to do the job and get out but the younger priest who's the documentarian he's a new priest just out of the seminary he's full of you know um he's thinking oh great we're going to capture a miracle for the first time he's all hopeful and optimistic uh but in terms of using you're saying how much of the film is based on real world stuff mm. um for me the there, is, there are supernatural elements, again, without trying to give anything away. There are supernatural elements in the film, of course. Mm. It's a horror film and um, there are supernatural happenings. But for me, the real horror is the stuff that's really happening, the stuff that happened in the real world, the way that women are treated in these places and yeah. um, the, and how, how power corrupts, how power structures enable evil to, to grow and flourish and how ineffectual one person who's trying to be good can be in a system like that. And that's kind of what the real horror is about. But um, so there's a combination of, and I'm quite faithful to that, to mm. representing the real world. The supernatural okay. stuff is, of course, totally made up. But they, uh, anything that's that's in the real world of the film is based on real things that did really happen to people. Mm. Okay, yeah, so so it's not like it's not like you you've 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 hit upon like the equivalent of the Enfield haunting and, 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 and use that as the basis to also tell the other real world stuff. No. Got you. Um, yeah. So in terms of um, the Fright Fest audience then, what 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 are you what are you I don't know I don't know how you can frame this without necessarily being a big spoiler or a little spoiler or, or even none at all. But thinking about the audience that are going to go and see, that might go and see this at Fright Fest, what, what are you excited for them to sort of experience with, with, uh, with your film, whether that be a specific incident or an overall feeling of it? Um, I think that that's a, an interesting question. On the one hand, I, I always want the audience to like the film. You know, I want, I, of course I do, you know. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you're not going to please absolutely everybody with anything. So it's beyond your control and they'll make it what they will. Mm. Thus far, I've been pretty lucky in that respect and audiences have been very receptive. They've really enjoyed it and there's been great feedback and so on. I think, um, and then there's the question of like authorial intent and all that, you know, like... Uh, once the audience watch it, that's when the film is finished, you know? Yeah. It's not finished in the editing room, it's finished in your head. Mm. And that is beyond my control, and that is uh, totally for the audience to decide what they make of it and so on. But I suppose the things that I'm proudest of in the film are, I really like the performances. 
I think there's some beautiful camera work. I think the 16 mil looks great. Mm. And I, I, I guess the the major thing that I was trying to, and this was a really tight schedule. Uh, it was a a low um, budget film. We had very little time to shoot it. It was all done really quickly. Uh, there was a lot of pressures and so on. But I think the but the thing that I really tried to hold on to was the emotional heart of the film mm. and really trying to give those characters an emotional arc that that worked and was moving and that made sense. And I think that comes across and I think that's in there. And a lot of the reviews have reflected that. So I think that's probably the thing that I'm proudest of. No, that sounds that sounds very appealing to me. Uh, it's, I, I'm fascinated because you, you, you talk about you, you're not being a practising Catholic, but having worked on a story which obviously has at the heart of it the ideas of faith and scepticism and doubt... Did did it did it did it have any impact on you personally, sort of delving that deep into it for a project? Or well, I mean, the main reason why those are the major themes at the heart of the film. Mm. Um, my the whole film from that one page, that meeting I had with the producer, where there was one page right to it being completely shot, was like six months, five or six months. It was very quick. Mm. So um, and wow. during that time, I mean, literally within. Within days of that meeting I had with the producer where he said, I've got this idea for a fan footage film. And I said, well, I wouldn't want to do it like that, but let's do it like this. My dad was diagnosed with uh, motor neuron disease. And it, it, usually people can live for many years with motor neuron disease. But my right. dad died Blimey. a couple of weeks before we actually went into production. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the whole time, the whole period across the genesis of this film, um, I was dealing also with my dad dying. And my dad had always struggled with these issues. These were issues that were big for him. Yeah. And they were becoming big for me at that time. He was turning back more to his faith now that he was dying. Uh, and But I think it was very complicated. And um, we, had, we had some conversations about it, but he was always kind of cagey about his faith as well. And he had really up and down, like, there were times in the past when he would have been complete atheist and times then that he turned back to it. And there's a lot of the discussion and the ideas that are being worked out in the film are literally from that. They're from those conversations I had with my dad. They're from his own internal uh, workings out. There's a, there are some words, sentences that Father Thomas says, he's the main priest who struggles with faith, that are literally straight out of my father's mouth. Blimey. So that was that was the, the major kind of thing that I was dealing with at the time. So that's front and centre in this film, uh, which, by the way, is also dedicated to my dad. I can um, imagine, yeah. Front and centre is, is his struggles of faith and my own kind of trying to make sense with that mm. and with, um, with my own grief and the, how difficult it is when someone's dying that you're close to. No, I, I, I did... Um, I did uh, the reason I... I mean, I certainly wasn't expecting that, so it's kind of mind-blowing. Um, but I, was, I did some research for, for, for a project about, about... And I spoke to a lot of born-again Christians and I spoke to priests and vicars and... And one person just said to me, the difference between you and me, Stuart, is... And they put their two fists out, and they went, this is you, and, and this is me, like the two fists. And he went, all you've got to do to, is just to leap of faith over to me. And I'm like, that's all I've got to do. It just, it just didn't... It doesn't, it, he, he thought it was that simple. Yeah. It was almost like a you know, click of the fingers, and I'd have faith. Yeah. And I was yeah. just looking at him in disbelief. <laughs> There's that word again. Um... And um, but the more the more I worked into the subject, my I felt that my like devout atheism, for want of a better expression, 
weakened because I had more sympathy for people that had faith. I didn't think it was as... I felt, I felt better about it having gone through it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, faith is a complicated thing. I mean, I don't have it at all, but I respect people that do. I respect, mm. like, I'd never be disparaging about it or anything like that. Mm. And I have friends who are practicing uh, in various faiths, but um, I think there's a lot more to it than just you decide and there you go. Like, <laughs> mm. Well, yeah, it's in, in, individual. Really, yeah. Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, in, individuals versus systemic belief, which is a very different thing, isn't it? The idea that a whole system of faith as opposed to what somebody might seek solace in or just comfort in is very different, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think organised religion is is a difficult thing too. Um, I think a lot of people have a, some sort of a faith that's, that is kind of individual, as you say, and is just based on... Uh, a nebulous idea of something in the universe that's taking care of something, but organised religion, a leap to, of faith towards that is quite huge, I think, especially nowadays with how much we know and um, advancements in science and all. I don't think it's impossible, obviously, and I, as I say, I have friends who are uh, practising in various religions, but for me, it's like it's a lot more than just a snap decision. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on the podcast to talk about The Devil's Doorway. Thank you, it's been my pleasure. The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. 